0: chapter twelve of mrs warren's daughter this librivox recording is in the public domain mrs warren's daughter by sir harry johnston chapter twelve vivie returns honoria armstrong faithful in friendship and purpose as few people are though she abated never a whit her love for her dear fierce blue-eyed bristly mustached battle-scarred bullying husband prepared for Vivie's return in the autumn of 1909 by securing for her occupancy a nice little one-storied house in a Kensington back street, one of those houses, I doubt not now tenanted by millionaires who don't want a large household, just a roof over their heads, that remain over from the early 19th century, when Kensington was emerging from a country village into villadom, the broad quiet road named after our late dear queen has nothing but these detached or semi-detached little cottages, orne one-storied villas with a studio behind or two-storied components of terraces for about a quarter of a mile and just before the war Building speculators were wont to pace its pavements with a hungry gaze directed to left and right, buying up in imagination all this wasted space, pulling down these pretty stucco nests, and building in their place castles of flats high into the air. I don't suppose this district will escape much longer the destruction of its graceful flowering trees and vivid gardens, its air of an opulent village. It will match with the rest of Kensingtonia in huge handsome buildings and be much sought after by the people who devote their lives till they commit suicide to illicit love and the victory balls at the Albert Hall. But in nineteen o nine, would that we were all back in nineteen o nine it was as nice a part of london as a busy energetic sober living spinster in the movement yet liking home retirement and lilac scented privacy could desire to inhabit at the absurd rental of fifty pounds a year with comparatively low rates and the need for only one hard-working self-respecting suffragette maid with the monthly assistance of a charwoman of advanced views there vivie took up her abode in november of the year indicated honoria lived not far away next door but one to the Parries in kensington square she vivie was aware that colonel armstrong did not altogether like her couldn't place her felt she wasn't one of us and therefore despite honoria's many invitations to run in and out and not to mind dear old army who was always like that at first just as their chow was she exercised considerable discretion about her frequentation of the Armstrong household, though she generally attended Honoria's suffrage meetings, held whenever the colonel was called away to Aldershot or Hyde Honoria by this time, the close of 1909, was the mother of four lovely, healthy, happy children. She would give birth to a fifth the following June, 1910, and then perhaps she would stop she often said about this time touching wood as she did so could any woman be happier she was so happy that she believed in god went sometimes to st mary abbot's or st paul's knightsbridge the music was so jolly and gave largely to cheerful charities as well as to the suffrage cause she would in the approach to christmas 1909 look round and survey her happiness could any one have a more satisfactory husband of course he was a man and had silly mannish prejudices but then without them he would not be so lovable her children two boys and two girls could you find greater darlings if you spent a week among the well-bred children playing round the round pond such natural children with really original remarks and untrained ideas not artificial peter pans who wistfully didn't want to grow up not slavish little mimics of the children's stories in vogue pretending to play at red indians when everyone knew that red indians nowadays dressed like all the other citizens of the united states and canada and sat in congress and cultivated political pulls or sold patent medicines or who said good hunting and other mowgli shibboleths to mystified relations from the mid-nineteenth-century country towns, nor children who teased the cat or interfered with the cook or stole jam or did anything else that was obsolete, or decried Sullivan's music in favor of Debussy's or of Scarlatini's seventeenth-century tirraliras, or wore spectacles and had to have their front teeth in gold clamps just clear-eyed, good-tempered, good-looking, roguish, and spontaneously natural and reasonably self-willed children, who adored their parents and did not openly mock at the Elishas that called on them. Then there were Honoria's friends. I gave a list of them in chapter two, which I am told has caused considerable offense, not by what was put in, but to those who were left out but they needn't mind if the protesters were nice people according to my standard you may be sure honoria knew them but of all of her friends none was dearer and closer save her husband than vivie warren pal of pals brave comrade of the unflinching eyes and somehow vivie since she fell in love with michael rossiter was ten times dearer than she had been before she was more understanding she had a brighter eye a much greater sense of humour she was tenderer she liked children as she had never done in bygone years and was soon adopted by the four children in kensington square as aunt vivie they also the two elder ones had a vague remembrance of an uncle david who had brought them toys and sweetmeats in a dim past aunt vivie and mummy used to get up the most amusing suffrage meetings in the long narrow garden behind the house or they combined forces with Lady Maud Parry and spoke in lilting contralto or mezzo-soprano with the compliant tenor or baritone of Here and There a Captive Man across the two gardens, or somehow they commandeered the square garden on the pretext of a vast garden party at which everyone talked and laughed at once over their suffrage views. Yes, Honoria was happy then, as indeed she had been during most of her life, except when her brother died and her mother died what did she lack for happiness nothing that this world can give in the opening twentieth century not even a very good pianola or a motor i feel somehow it was almost unfair in my rage at the inequality of treatment meted out by the powers beyond shall not general sir petworth armstrong die in the great debacle of the world-wide war i shall see later and yet i feel that this nucleus of pure happiness housed in kensington square or at petworth manor was to the little world that revolved round the armstrongs like a good radiator in a cold house it warmed many a chilly nature into fructification it healed many a scar it brightened many a humble life like that of bertie adams's hard-working washerwoman mother or the gamekeeper's crippled child at Petworth, or the newest suburbanist little employee of Fraser and Claridge's huge establishment in the Brompton Road. It pulled straight the wayward life of some young subaltern, about to come a cropper, but who, after a talk or two with that jolly Mrs. Armstrong, took quite a different course and made a decent marriage it conjoined with many of the social activities for good of one who might have been her twin sister suzanne phoenix only that suzanne was twenty years older and perhaps an inch or two shorter dear woman my remembrance flashes a kiss to your astral cheek which in reality i should never have dared to salute so great was my awe of colonel armstrong's muscles as at any reasonable time before or after the birth of your last child in june nineteen ten you stand in the hall of your sunny eighteenth-century house with the gold and green glint of the kensington garden behind you "'saying with your glad eyes and bonny mouth, "'Come to our suffrage party? Such a lark. "'We've got Mrs. Pankhurst here, and the police daren't raid us. "'They're so afraid of Army. "'Of course he's away, but he knows perfectly well what I'm doing. "'He's quite given in. "'Now, Michael, you show Sir Harry and Lady Johnston to the front seats.' I looked round for the rather gloomy presence of Michael Rossiter, but it was his little golden-haired godson she meant. "'You shall have your general back safe from the wars, with a wound that gives only honour, a reasonable number of well-earned decorations, and a reputation for rather better strategy than Aldershot generally produces. And he shall live out his wholesome life alongside yours, still dispensing happiness,' even under a labor government till as burton used to wind up his arabian nights love-stories there came to them the destroyer of delight and the sunderer of societies honoria acted towards the suffrage movement somewhat as in older-fashioned days of second empire laxity well-to-do people evaded military service under conscription by paying a substitute to take their place in the fighting line on account of her husband and the children she had just had or was going to have she did not throw herself into the physical struggle but she still continued out of her brother's earmarked money to subsidize the cause rather regretfully she looked on from a motor a balcony a front window or the safe plinth of some huge statue whilst her comrades with less to risk physically and socially matched their strength of will their trained muscles their agility astuteness and feminine charm seldom without some effect against the brute force and imperturbability of the police the struggle waxed hot and fierce in the early months of nineteen ten Vivie held herself somewhat in the background also, not wishing to strike publicly and effectively until she was sure for what principle she endangered her life and liberty. Nevertheless, she became a resource of rising importance to the suffrage cause. She was known to have had a clever barrister cousin who, for some reasons best known to himself, had of late kept in the background. Ill health, said some, an unfortunate love affair, said another but his pamphlet on the white slave traffic on the continent showed that he was still at work. Vivie was thought to be fully equal in her knowledge of the law to her cousin, though not allowed to qualify for the bar. Case after case was referred to her with the hope that if she could not solve it, she might submit it to her cousin's judgment. In this way, excellent legal advice was forthcoming, which drove the Home Office officials from one quandary to another. But in the spring of 1910, looking back on nearly twelve months of womanly life, save for David's summer of continental travel, decided that she didn't like being a woman so far as woman was dressed in 1910 and for three or four hundred years previously. As David, this had been more or less her costume—an undershirt, two in very cold weather, a pair of pants coming down to the ankle and well-fitting woolen socks on the feet, a shirt sometimes in daytime all of one piece with its turnover collar, at worst with a separate collar and a tie passed through it, braces that really braced and held up the nether garment of trousers, a waistcoat buttoning fairly high up, no pneumonia blouse two waistcoats if she liked or a dandy slip buttoned innocently inside the single vest to suggest the white lie of a second dinner vest over the waistcoat a coat or jacket on the head a hat which fitted the head in thirty seconds allowing for David's shock of hair lace-up or button boots with perhaps at most six buttons gloves with one button spats, if David wanted to be very dressy, with three buttons. On top of all of this, a warm, easily-fitting overcoat or a Macintosh. If you were really dressing to kill, as a man, it might take half an hour. If merely to go about your business and not be specially remarked for foppishness, twenty minutes. To divest yourself of all this and get into pajamas and sew to bed, ten minutes. But when Vivie returned to herself and went about the world of nineteen o nine, nineteen ten, and merely wished to pass as an inconspicuous, modest woman, she had to spend hours in dressing and undressing, and this is what she had to wear and waste so much of her time in adjusting and removing. Next, the skin, merino combinations, unwieldy garments requiring a contortionist's education to put on without entangling your front and hind limbs. The combies were specially buttoned with an infinitude of small, scarcely visible buttons, which always wanted sewing on and replacing, and were peevish about remaining in the buttonhole. Often, too, the combies i really can't keep writing the full name—had to be tied here and there with little white ribbons which preferred getting into a knot. No wonder the average woman has a temper. When the combies went to the wash, all these ribbonlets had to be taken out, specially washed, specially ironed, and ingeniously threaded back into position. Next to the combinations, proceeding outwards, came the corset, a most serious affair. This exceedingly expensive instrument of torture was compounded chiefly of silk, which easily frayed, and whalebone. Many good women of the middle class have gone to their graves for three hundred years believing that Almighty God had specially created toothless whales of the family Balanid solely for the purpose of providing women with the only possible ingredient for a corset, and for three hundred years brave seamen of the Dutch, British, and Basque nations have gone to a watery grave to procure for women this indispensable aid to correct clothing." But these filaments of horny palatal processes are unamiable. Though sheathed in silk or cotton, they, after the violent movements of a suffragette or a charwoman, break through the restraining sheath and run into the body under the fifth rib or press forward on to the thigh, which is why you often see a woman's face in an omnibus express severe pain and her lips utter the exclamation, "Ay, ay." then this confounded corset had to be laced with pink ribbons at the back and in front and both lacings demanded unusual suppleness of arms and sense of touch in finger-tips and when the corset went to the wash the ribbons had to be drawn out washed ironed and threaded again from the front of the corset hung two elastic suspenders as yet awaiting their prey but first must be drawn on the silk or stockinette knickerbockers which in the 1910 woman replaced the piteously laughable drawers of the Victorian period. Then the suspenders clutched the rims of the stockings with an arrangement of nickel and rubber which no man would have tolerated for its inefficiency, but would have thrown back in the face of the shopman and have been charged with assault. In times of stress, at public meetings, the suspenders would release the stockings from their hold, and the latter roll about the ankles of the embarrassed pleader for women's rights. Who would be free themselves must strike the blow, and first of all throttle the modiste, thought Vivie. Then there was the camisole that concealed the corset and had to be pinned in with safety pins the knickerbockers might not seek the aid of braces but they must be kept up by an elastic band over the camisole in nineteen ten came a blouse pernickety and shiftless about its waist fastening and finally a hobble skirt chiefly kept up by safety pins and so cut below as to hamper free movement of the limbs as much as possible Day-boots often had as many as twenty-one buttons, and, mind you, not sham buttons, as I used to think out of swagger, but every button demanded entrance into a practicable buttonhole. Or the boots themselves were mere shoes with many buttoned spats drawn over them. All the boots had high heels, and the woman walked so as to put a severe strain on her arched instep in order that she might bring on by degrees flatfoot for surgical treatment who shall describe the hats of nineteen ten and before and since in all but the very poorest women they were enormous and so were the hat boxes and they could only be held on to the head by running hat pins through wisps of hair I will not portray the evening dresses that it sometimes takes a kindly husband an hour to fasten with press buttons and hooks and eyes, and poor Vivie had no husband and depended on her suffragette maid, because at all costs she mustn't look dowdy or the woman's cause might suffer at Mrs. Pethwick Lawrence's receptions. As to night gear, of course Vivie, being a free agent slept in David's pyjamas. She had long ago cut the Gordian knots of her beribboned, girdled nightgowns in favor of the Indian garment. But can you wonder, after this true recital of the simplest forms of a decent woman's costume in nineteen nine, nineteen ten, and even now, a recital drawn from a paper on woman's dress, delivered by David on one of the last occasions in which he appeared at the debating society of the Inner Temple, and checked by my jury of matrons, can you wonder that Vivi took very hardly to giving up a man's life in the clothes of David Williams?' how she vowed to herself, fruitlessly, because now she is one of the best-dressed women in town, in a quiet way, that she would one day enfranchise women in their costume as in their citizenship. This will never be done until the Modistes of Paris, in some great popular uprising, are strangled and burnt on the Place de la Concorde." At the 1910 January election, Michael Rossiter had been returned as MP for one of the Midland universities. His science had certainly suffered from his suppressed love for Vivie, a passion which secretly tortured him, yet for which he dared ask no respite. He thought it was about time that real men of science entered Parliament to check the utter mismanagement of public affairs which had been going on since 1900. He proposed to himself to make a succession of brilliant speeches. He really was an admirable and fluent lecturer on anthropology, chemistry. Chemistry ought to appeal even to city men because it made such a lot of money. Ethnology, hygiene, geography, economic botany, regional zoology, germ diseases, agriculture, etc., etc., and the absolute necessity of giving woman the same electoral privileges as man he was always well inclined that way but after he realized that david was vivie he became almost an embittered suffragist the Speaker took care that he had little scope for his anthropology, economic botany, chemistry, hygiene, etc., on votes of supply, but he got in some nasty blows in the woman's cause, and in fact was so strangely rancorous that ministers looked at him evilly and arranged that he was not placed on the Committee of the Conciliation Bill, that amusing farce with which the Liberal Ministry sought in 1910 to stave off the suffrage dilemma— Rossiter and Vivie seldom met except at public receptions. Every now and again he came to suffrage meetings when she was going to speak. And how well she spoke then! How real it all seemed to her! How handsome she looked, even at thirty-six! And how near she was to tears and a breakdown, while his eyes burned— and when he got home, poor little Linda was in despair over her poor distraught Michael, who could find no happiness or contentment in ten thousand a year, great fame as the chief inventor of the ductless glands, and the man who had issued a taxonomic classification of the bovidae, which even satisfied me. What a cruel force is love, or is the cruelty in human disciplinary laws? Here were two persons eminently suited to be mates, calculated while still in the prime of life to procreate offspring that would be a credit to the nation, who asked for nothing more in life than to lie in each other's arms, after which no doubt they would have arisen and performed the most wonderful feats in inductive science or in embroidery or mathematics and they were inwardly raging, losing their appetites, sleeping very badly yet eschewing drugs, pursuing will-of-the-wisps in politics, wasting the best years of their lives from a sense of duty, that sense of duty which has made the Nordic white man the dominant race on the earth. "'We suffer individually, but we gain collectively,' Rossiter said to himself. In May 1910, King Edward died, and all these gladiators, male and female, willingly declared a truce in the suffrage battle to obtain a much-needed rest in the weary conflict. As soon as political activities were resumed, the conciliation bill by the energies of the liberal whips was talked out, wasn't it? At any rate, it came to nothing for that session. Vivie took this as a decision— she openly declared that the vote never would be given by the House of Commons or House of Lords until it was wrung from the legislature by a complete dislocation of public affairs, the nearest approach to a revolution women could bring about without rifles or cannon. Meantime, she refused to be duped by ministers or by amiable go-betweens. She resolved instead, perhaps for the last time, to resume the clothes and status of David Williams, go down to wales and stay with her father who was dying by slow degrees the letters which the curate had written from time to time to d v williams esq care of michael rossiter esq f r s and usually forwarded on by bertie adams had told David how much the Rev. Howell Williams had failed since the cold spring of 1909 and how in the colder spring of 1910 he had once or twice narrowly survived influenza. In July 1910 he was dying of heart failure. Nevertheless, the return of David, his well-beloved, brought to him a flicker of renewed life, a little pink in the cheeks and some garrulity he could hardly bear his darling son out of his sight except for the narrowest margin of necessary sleep and often david slept sitting up in an armchair in the vicar's bedroom the reverend howell said nothing more about grandchildren often with a finer sense spoke to him not as though he were a son but as a beloved daughter at last he died in his sleep one night holding david's hand looking so ineffably happy that the impostor inwardly gloried in his imposture as in one of the best deeds of his chequered life the will of course had not been changed and david inherited all his father's property out of it he settled five hundred pounds on the miner's or rather jenny's son who probably was the offspring of the real david williams's boyish amour he provided a handsome annuity for poor shaken old nanny, and the rest of the money after paying all expenses, he laid out on an endowment of the village hall for games and study, social meetings and political discussions, together with provision for an annual stipend of a hundred pounds for the vicar or curate of the parish who should run this hall, which was to be a lasting memorial to the Reverend Howell Vaughan Williams, so learned in the lore of Wales." having settled all these matters to his satisfaction and certainly to that of the rev cadwallader jones who succeeded as vicar of pontystrad by a wise nudging and monetary pressure on the part of the late vicar's son david returned to london at the close of nineteen ten took off his clothes and shed his personality it was bruited that he had gone abroad to nurse a health that was seriously impaired through his incredible exertions over the shillito case he left his cousin vivie free to espouse the suffrage cause even unto the extremest militancy End of chapter twelve